Hello, everyone, and welcome to LambdaCast, the podcast about learning functional programming from the perspective of a working developer. I'm your host, David Kuntz. I'm a polyglot programmer who, after years of disappointment in the languages I was using, discovered functional programming and never left. I focus on game development and teaching, utilizing FP concepts wherever I can. I make money by writing line-of-business web and desktop applications. And I'm joined by my co-host, Kat Chuang. Hi, everyone. Kat is a designer working in a Haskell shop which means a combination of about 20% Haskell and 80% CSS, both of which are composable languages. She has experience in UX research and organizes events for the New York Haskell user group over the past several years. And Logan Barnett. Hello. Logan is a UI engineer presently working in JavaScript with tools such as Angular and React. He uses a lot of functional concepts in his day-to-day work, as well as ML-inspired tools such as Ramda and Flow. Logan also has a background in backend development and game development. All right, we love hearing from you. Uh, please keep sending us email, contact at lambdacast.com. You can also follow us at lambdacast on Twitter, or you can join the fpchat.com Slack community, and there is a lambdacast channel there that you can join us for. We also, uh, if you are feeling it, have a Patreon account where you can support us. That is patreon.com slash LambdaCast, and we have more supporters to thank this episode, Chris Lopez, Gabe Johnson, Randy Shepard, and Noel Waghorn. Thank you all for supporting the podcast. Speaking of feedback, we have a little uh, John Orford in the Slack channel give us some feedback. He said, I really love the latest podcast episode. Really great show as with others, but I think types come into their own with purity. The fewer side effects, the more it can be described by inputs and outputs of a function, and that leads to more accurate type definitions. Uh, he says the, the preciseness is key because pure functions are such a simple thing to describe. Um, and one more thing, we almost got there with Wadler and Erlang and his trying to add a type system to it, how type systems sometimes cannot describe systems which work very well. But with a more descriptive type system, perhaps there's a way out of it. Maybe dependent types can help. Uh, and then he, he went on to talk about how Haskell uh, sort of uh, interprets the Erlang actor model, and he sent along a link to Cloud Haskell, which is sort of an a actor model implementation in Haskell. So we'll make sure that that is posted in the show notes. What is a dialyzer? Oh, dialyzer was the um, like optional type system, kind of like flow for Erlang kind of thing. They, um, so Philip Wadler, had, who was part of the original or the very early Haskell team, went to Erlang to add a, a strong static type system to Erlang, and it sort of got there, and I think it, at some point he gave up and moved on to other things. It, it proved to be very difficult. It's kind of like you can type these things, but and you can also not type these other things, and it just kind of ignores right. that section. Right, um, and, and so okay. some people in the Erlang community swear by Dialyzer, and some people are kind of like, shrug, you know, it's not like 100%, so I'm not going to use You're it. You're in Erlang, you don't want types anyways. Well, and it becomes awkward to type certain things. Like it runs into like dark corners that are very difficult to work with. The same way that you probably run into if you're doing flow or TypeScript in and trying to do like random functions that are weird. In in JavaScript, like I, I built the the flow types for uh, Angular, and there's some things like the dependency injections. Just it's just like any. <laughs> because you can't really do anything with it. Uh, basically, it's like I take a this this list here can be strings or functions, and really only the last one can ever be a function. There's no way to, to say that. But there's I don't know of any way to 
annotate right. that in flow and I, I put that in the PR too. It's just like eh, try yep. your best. And they accepted it. So Yeah, so I think dialyze are into yeah. some of those same things where when you have an existing system that's built on dynamic kind of principles, it is going to be all over the place once you start start putting static types on top of it. All right, that is our feedback. So we can go ahead and get into our topic, which is sort of functional programming communities or or the larger functional programming community as a whole, Uh, which is kind of interesting because it's in some ways, it's just another programming community. And we've all, or many of us have been part of those for a long time. Some people may be new to programming in general, Uh, but in other ways, the functional programming community kind of is its own beast. Is that sort of your experience or is, or is it different for you? Yeah, I would say in my experience, uh, learning how to interact with other programmers um, also has its own learning curve. So that's in general? Um, I would say more in terms of anecdotally, I've noticed there's different, I suppose you can say cultures uh, among different languages. Um, but also I think just knowing how to get along with other programmers is really key to happily joining a community and staying there and getting along with everyone. And that's probably true across all programming disciplines, no matter what you're at, whether you're functional or oh, not. Yes, yeah. yes, definitely. All right. So uh, with this discussion, um, we're kind of talking about the functional community, which will have a lot of overlap with uh, all programmers, just in general, like Kat was saying, and then uh, we'll have its own sort of special thing. So is there anything that we can say about the functional programming community that is sort of unique to it? separate from, say, like the Ruby or Java or C-Sharp or Angular or React communities? Um, I'll say, like, as the person attending these events, I could feel really intimidated um, just walking into a room and everybody seems to know what they're talking about. They're using a lot of buzzwords, or I shouldn't say buzzwords, I should say um, jargon, that words that I may not have heard of before, or maybe I have, but I forgot what they mean. I have definitely shared this experience of just like people seem fiercely intelligent and or specialized in a way that I, I'm not even like talking the same language as them. Um, they're talking about things like monads and burritos and all that. And I just can't keep up. That, but also, I don't know if it's okay to interrupt or, or to ask a question. I don't, I don't want to be the yeah. one who's always asking a question every other sentence. <laughs> Right. Hey, wait a second. What's a dialyzer and, again? And, and you're saying right. this this feels different than say like a a React JS meetup kind of thing. I can't say specifically on React JS because I haven't attended oh, one okay. of those. But you know, what I mean, an equivalent non FP kind of meetup. Sure. Um, I can speak on behalf of maybe Python. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, the Python events that I go to, I usually come across more beginning programmers who might be the ones who are feeling shy and intimidated. And so compared to them, I know a little bit more, um, or it, this just comes across, like they have more questions on like how to install things or what libraries they just haven't um, had as much exposure. So then in explaining things, it just comes across as I know a little bit more. Whereas in the functional programming groups, like Haskell, for instance, they'll start using words like polymorphism and I won't remember what that means. Okay. So would it be fair to say that it feels like when you walk into a stereotypical, again, we're, we're very much generalizing here. This is very much stereotypical. When you walk into stereotypical FP language meetup, it kind of feels like everyone there 
at, at a base feels like a very advanced programmer, where you go to a lot of other meetups and it feels like the majority of people are actually fairly new or are beginner programmers. Right. Or it could possibly just be that people who are career changing into coding or just um, playing around with code have heard of languages such as um, Python and JavaScript, but they have not heard of Haskell. So just just by that alone, maybe. It's interesting that that's like a really relative uh, comparison, though, because you're, you're basing, and this isn't to point out like a flaw or anything, but you're, you're just an observation of you're basing your comfortableness with it on how much you know going in or how much you know compared to others going That's in more, more accurately. Right. So you're saying that the content might and, be equally complex, but because the makeup of the group feels uh, more beginnery, it feels less intimidating? I don't even know if it's that. It's just necessarily of like, we've got people asking more questions and I know the answers there to those. Or, or at least I can, I can, I can speak to answers about those, even if I don't I have will, an answer. I will point out, like before right. it gets to that stage of, you know how much each of us knows. Um, just like looking at a person in the eye and smiling, like that already gives me a sense of is that person approachable or not. Oh yeah, yeah, and and we can definitely talk about yeah. like within a community where some some guidelines for maybe making it a nice place. Uh, I was just trying to get a because I, I think a lot of people will come in with different experiences, different parts of the country or the world, different levels of experience. But the FP community absolutely has this mystique error whatever of unapproachability impenetrability some people would say that's academic some people would say that it's rigorous you know you could view that from different the same thing from different perspectives uh, but it does seem that people generally have a harder time jumping into an fp community than they do jumping into say python sure right i i definitely had some experience with that of like uh we have a, we had a haskell meetup in portland I, I i don't know if it's still running or not but uh, it was it was hosted out of the Gawa office. Mm -hmm. Did I pronounce that right this time? Okay. Uh, and I guess that's a really renowned uh, software shop for doing Haskell yep. stuff. Um, I was I was very surprised at the first Lambda Conf I went to that like people knew who that was. I I don't know who that was, and I live here. They were actually like across the street from where I worked, but um, they they do like crypto stuff for government contracts using Haskell and they need to like prove that it works and that's what they do for a living and so they're speaking at a level that's just like wow i i don't i don't even know how to read the math books that you just glaze through every day like the prerequisites for that talk are intimidating like <laughs> right right or or just just the just the atmosphere that you're in is just like that's that's who you're you are showing up to and trying to mm -hmm. appear with Right. And so I, I've experienced the same thing uh, being part of functional communities where I felt like I must have really missed something like like a PhD or something. You know, there's like a hole that's about right, four years right, long right. and a lot of a lot of papers and a lot of reading. Uh, and, and I just couldn't figure out how anyone else had gotten past that. Like, how do you not all have like what path did you take to get here? Because it feels uh, too steep a, a hill to climb. And people talk about the learning you know, the learning cliff of, yeah. of Haskell and some of those things versus like a learning hill or even a, a slope. Right. And because um, it's so steep, and, and, I like to learn in a social setting. So I really like the idea of meeting other people learning Haskell or any other, uh, whatever language I'm interested at the time, 
because I think that would help me learn quicker. And yet it's kind of like there's two sides of the coin here. So you're saying you definitely want there to be a meetup that you can go to because that's yes, an environment that you enjoy. I, yeah. But it feels like you're, you have to be at a certain level of preparedness to attend some of these meetups? That, yes, correct. Gotcha. Um, okay, so let's talk about the meetup, like kind of the the experience of attending like a meetup. Since, since we're kind of talking about that. And, and Kat, you had kind of mentioned, you know, showing up and, and people being able to look you in the eye and smile and like, thanks for coming, you know, that kind of thing. That if you are greeted in a certain way, that that certainly can make you feel uh, much more at ease. Yes, a little more at ease to speak candidly or just to maybe ask a question. So I don't feel like I'm wasting their time because maybe they are open to questions, comments. Well, one thing I, I've did that worked really well. It, I, it was actually at that specific uh, meetup is, you know, they were talking about some strife in the Haskell community. You know, it does take some guts to ask a question in a large room full of people. But, but once you throw that question out there, nobody's like, you're in the wrong meetup. You need to, <laughs> That's true. they're over there. All the other people who know all the stuff that you only know, and um, clearly you don't know anything about this, so you shouldn't be here. Nobody's ever done that in any meetup that right. I've ever been to. That you is know, very true. Functional or otherwise. And Although the, the fear but of that it's still It's still remains. scary, yeah. <laughs> right? But yeah, and it's like with the Haskell folks that I was with, like they were very welcoming. They're like, oh, okay, yeah, let's slow down and talk about this a little bit. And here's this, uh, this core library that they version and you can use different bits of it and why that's a problem, why we have to revisit a bunch of codes because they want to make something more correct. I think that was the topic. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm deviating though. So we could we could I guess take a slight step back and say that like any community, any functional programming community is filled with humans, <laughs> and like any group of humans, some of them are going to have high emotional intelligence, and some of them are going to have low emotional intelligence, and some of them are in the middle. Um, you know, there's going to be a distribution. But generally speaking, I think people go out to a either participate in an online community or go to a meetup or a study group or a conference because they are passionate about something, they 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 enjoy it to a degree, um, or they're very interested in it. They mm-hmm. want to be there. They want Humans want to share their interests with others. So just by being at that meetup with someone else, even if it's about ridiculous crypto stuff that, like, what the hell are they even talking about? Just by being there, you're kind of in the same tribe a little Correct. bit, right? Because you're, you're there. So as much as we want to think like, ah, oh, they're going to think I'm an idiot and they're going to laugh and point to the door and be like, get out noobs. Noobs are in that room over there. Or we, or we don't take noobs here. Like get out. Uh, I've never seen that happen. Uh, it's never happened to me. And I, I've never heard of it happening to someone. Uh, it's probably more subtle if, if it does happen. Um, there, there'd be like a shaming component or something. Uh, or you don't Actually, know. Blah, blah, blah. As you point that out, I remember there, there were a couple individuals, um, where maybe there were like certain habits that they had or tendencies that just a little less favorable, but it wasn't anything terrible. And nobody really wanted to directly tell this person. So I would say, actually, yeah, nobody will come out and be really nasty to you in your face. But there's also that, I guess, just timidness that I feel um, because mm-hmm. I respect everyone uh, for being so intelligent and so passionate. Yeah, and and to a degree, the fact that these people are really smart 
is the reason to be part of the community in the first right. place. That's like, as much as that's intimidating, that's actually the reason to participate. Yes. That they're not just making another JavaScript framework that does the same thing exactly. in a slightly yes. different way as all these other ones. They're modeling state spaces with co-monads and you're like, wow, I have no idea what that means, but that kind of sounds really cool and that's not what I'm getting from these other communities. Correct. So there's a reason to be here and we have to believe that they want us to be there as much as we want to be a part of that. Yes. Uh, and of course... There is a huge range in the f the efficacy in which people in those communities uh, interact with with other people, right? Um, whether they're new or not, mm -hmm. um, and we'll get to that. Um, we'll talk about sort of our suggestions on what communities can do to sort of uh, make this an easier process for people uh, in a second. There's something to be said for software engineering is disproportionately represented by people on the autistic spectrum. Um, you know, which oh. influences emotional mm -hmm. old quotient or whatever. Do you think it's nature maybe. or nurture, though? Because maybe just by interacting with computers more than humans, it's just they don't get the practice. That's I, I'm not there to, to speculate sure. on that. <laughs> it could also I, be I, our, our selection it. process for who we encourage to go into computing. I mean, there's all kinds yeah, of reasons. Yeah, but, but maybe, um, you know, I think, Kat, you were talking about this before the show. Is like, we need to try not to take that too personally. If they happen to say something that's a little short or seemingly scathing, and maybe, maybe they don't mean it right. that way. It's just them being direct and speaking, you know, honestly in their mind. And they don't see the emotional impact it's having. It's quite possible. Uh, I, I know I get, like, wound up and passionate about things, and I'm sure I intimidate people that are much more junior to me whenever I start going in the hypomanic about something and i mean that's probably fairly equivalent to any community that's large enough you're going to get people in them that are sort of uh you know they interact poorly with others or they they give feedback badly you know that's kind of a, a general life thing but especially when you feel vulnerable because you're new to a community and you feel like you don't belong you feel like you don't deserve probably deserve is the word we use in our heads i think often uh, i don't deserve to be here um, I'm a fake. I'm a phony. What am I doing here? They're going to find me out and kick me out kind of thing. Uh, that harsh kind of interaction really clobbers you hard <laughs> when you're at that like vulnerable stage. Um, but yeah, so if we could push through that and if we can kind of as a overall community be very aware of that being a, a very vulnerable place for people as they're just entering the community, we can hopefully bring more people in like more successfully and help them stay yeah yes uh, we'll get to that when we talk about running a group let's let's keep on the participating in a community a little bit more um what do we have to say about um we started talking about meetups let's that's fine let's keep going about that um kat you talked about going and kind of having this experience of some people are going to smile and be friendly and you're going to feel like man i can i can totally fit in here this is great and then you go to some others and it's like you don't really feel like anyone's inviting you in so that that's kind of a, a feeling you have to get yeah, uh, it could be a figure out what to do with. It, it could be a cultural thing where I just grew up feeling like approachability means somebody inviting you in, and even when I'm hosting, I feel like, and I know we're talking about hosting later, but I feel like there is a pressure for me to be a little extra more welcoming to new faces. Mm -hmm. um, but it could just be a cultural thing, and and like my own personal take on how personal interactions should take place. So do we feel that FP meetups are different or about the same as non-FP programming meetups? Like have you like if you compare your Python meetups to your Haskell meetups, do they feel 
like structurally, like someone goes up and gives a talk or you do like a group discussion or you do like a hack, hack night. Do those feel about the same to you? So activity wise, I guess there's differences because the Haskell group is just so much smaller than the Python group by like infinite, not infinite. Mm -hmm. That's the wrong value. <laughs> but um, order of magnitude, a, a large a coefficient. Very, yeah. yeah. Or a small coefficient, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So because there's more people in the Python group, there can be more events. There can be more people um, who can organize events. So there's just different um, types of events and activities. Okay, so there's there's going to be – it's a smaller community, just in general. Pick any – the most popular language and compare it to JavaScript and you've lost horribly, right? You're just crushed by like times a thousand. Uh, so we're never going to be as big as those communities, uh, which means we're going to have smaller meetups, maybe fewer fewer events, uh, one every month, every two months versus like five a month or, or something for like a Ruby or JavaScript or whatever is popular in your part of the country. Uh, and, and so those meetups then have to make hard decisions. They uh, they don't have as many people who want to present. So they may have just a few people who feel comfortable getting up and, and doing all the presentations. They don't want to do it month after month. Um, there's also, it's hard to appeal to different skill levels because you only meet once a month. And if you're trying to, uh, at least I can speak to my local group in Phoenix that we have a lot of people who are day job imperative programming that want to do functional and want to transition. And I think that's fairly common for a lot of meetups. Uh, how do you how do you help all those people while still keeping anyone interested who's doing it for a job? A lot of mentorees, not a lot of mentors. Yeah, exactly. So to speak. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, if you do a topic on something that would appeal to someone working full time in Haskell, that will be completely overwhelming for someone who is like, I do C sharp during the day and I want to be writing Haskell or F sharp. Like those those people are different yeah. places. When there's nothing to to present for months, you start running into things like, Well, I don't have anything to present, but I'll show you what I've been dabbling with lately. So, you know, here's me along the bleeding edge of this topic that you are not very familiar with at all. And then is it just people staring at code for half an hour going, I have no idea what any of this not is? Not necessarily that, but just more like I, there's just no part of this talk in which I can realistically participate unless I have you back up and explain the beginning of the universe to me. Okay, so at that, yes, that reminds me, there is a difference I've noticed. Um, for instance, in the Haskell community, they tend to share code with each other and they look at the code, not comments of code, like the actual code, whereas maybe some of the other groups like JavaScript or Python, it would be, here's the app I created, here's what I want people to be able to do with the software. So there is a different emphasis on what's being created. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, here's, here's a transform we can do. Here's a big talk on transducers or some other tool mm -hmm. versus, like, look, I made something that talks to a database and it comes back really fast and we can performance test that somehow or something. Right. So... Cult, like there's a little bit of um, maybe maybe you could say generally within at least the static side of the FP communities, there's a little bit of fetishism of clever code. Yes. Mm. Here and there, right? Tricks tricks yeah. you can do with X Y Z. These things I can do with these type declarations or what these type declarations mean. Yeah. And, and none of these are necessarily bad talks, but it's foreign, right? Like like like, like we were talking about how it's relative coming into these FP meetups and stuff that we're i'm coming in knowing virtually nothing i'm a beginner i have to start all over again i, I can't carry over a lot of my prior mm -hmm. lessons to this stuff and i haven't had to deal with that for like over a decade that's a good point it's been over a decade since i've been a junior engineer you know 
and now I'm a junior. I'm a junior functional programmer. That's a what very it good like point. Coming in. Yeah. Uh, it can feel super like you're doing something wrong. Like you fundamentally miss something because it feels like you're a beginner. And it's because you actually are because you've actually switched paradigms. Before you switched languages within the same paradigm. And it felt like a new thing, but it was really kind of variant of the same thing. And now you're actually switching paradigms. So it is so much harder than going from Java to Python or something like that. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, what do we have to say about... Uh, Carrying on with the the in person kind of thing, uh, what about study groups? As I know, Kat, you have experience with the the New York uh, Haskell study group. Yes. Um, so there was Stephen Sirik who started a study group, and he was able to host it every week, which was very good momentum. But also, it was hard to keep up with that momentum, and we would just mm-hmm. go through the Haskell book a chapter at a time. And the idea was that we would read it ourselves, work on the exercises ourselves, and then when we get to the study group, we discuss answers with each other. So there was a lot of self-study that one had to do to participate, and I also felt that it required a lot of effort to do that. Um, so it was, I think, a really good attempt. Um, it didn't really cover everybody's schedule or learning style, but it was definitely a really good attempt in that a core group of people did go every week and they finished the book or pretty close to finishing. If they were able to go every week. Yeah. So, so a study group sounds like that's a much higher intensity kind of a commitment, but you can get a lot more out of it, right? Like your, yes. your learning pace is just like, it can be incredible. Yes, definitely. It's uh, more intense in that you really have to be there and, and focused, um, I mean, if you're attending somebody who's giving a talk, maybe you're in the back checking your phone and it's a room full of people, so maybe they don't notice. But if you're in a study group, it's smaller. Maybe there's like five to ten people present. Like, they'll know if you're not paying attention. There's no place to hide. Right. Kind of thing. But it's, yeah. Right. But it's also, because it's a smaller group, a little less intimidating as well. Okay. Because... It- they, they know where you're at, like, on a personal level? It could be the, the number of people that's less intimidating or, like, the fact that we're all trying to learn from this book. So, I, you know, like, nobody's written a core library um, in the Oh, group. right. If you're all reading Haskell book, you're all kind of, like, self-identifying <laughs> yes. as beginners, and that's mm-hmm. your goal. Yeah. You raise your hand, and then you've got, like, 30 or 40 heads that all turn to you, and there's this awkward silence, like, okay, what was I going to ask again? Yeah. Yep, yep. yep. That's, that's not quite there in the little study groups, right? Right, and then also, I believe uh, Stephen Sirk, he did really good at, um, like, also, I guess, monitoring the group as far as, um, you know, if, if you were going on talking too long about an answer... He'll try to uh, get other people to talk. So um, the participation was a little more equal because of that. I think just having a moderator to help. So somebody who's who's a little bit more experienced maybe with, with teaching or something. Yes, who's going around and helps. saying, like, okay, what do you think? Let's bring you exactly, into this discussion. Exactly, yes. He did a lot of that. What I'm hearing is that um, a good, a positive uh, part of the study group that you participated in was a leader who could sort of uh, pull people in and like get them involved maybe to a degree they wouldn't naturally have quite done like get their opinion and and make them feel involved yes and that's probably pretty hard to do in a meetup situation because if you got 30 people 40 people you kind of don't have that one-on-one thing anymore Uh, i'm just gonna pick on the front row right or something (laughs) something like that but (laughs) but the study group gives you that Mm -hmm. 
that is a very good, important difference. So if you're looking to really kind of accelerate and you and you have the opportunity, because it's not necessarily willingness, it's like it's an opportunity thing. Some people are advantaged and some people are disadvantaged in that regard. Uh, a study group could be really good for you. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about maybe how you might want to get one of those going here in a little bit. Um, what about the the third type of in-person interaction, conferences? Oh, that's like a meetup, typical meetup um, event, but like on a larger scale. So it's yeah, like, also <laughs> a giant meetup. Okay. Yeah. I, I find the conference starts at the airport. Okay. <laughs> like, like, like sometimes you'll get on the, uh, you know, you'll be boarding the plane and like, oh man, that guy has a Lambda comp shirt from last year. Oh yeah. Or something. And, you know, you can totally like hit that person up for conversation or something if, if that's something you want. Yeah, or you overhear a conversation, da 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 da, function, and you're like, <laughs> right. the ears go up, and you're like, oh, let's go over and talk to them. Yeah. Okay, yeah, definitely. And and if you're not um, fortunate enough to have that on the plane or whatever, it might be the the shuttle ride, or you might prearrange in some sort of conference chat to to meet up with people at the airport ahead of time, uh, share shuttles, that kind of thing. It's also why it's useful to like, it's it's a pretty good idea to support some tribalism. Uh, wear if you can. Okay. Right. Wear 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 shirts that that you know say who you are or something if you can afford to do that. Um, it can help. It helps the serendipity with it, right? It gives people the opportunity at least to to say, hey, you are wearing a Haskell shirt. You're probably going to whatever conference. Yeah, and and if they're on the plane with you there, chances are they're coming from the same region you are. In. So that's a good point. They might be in your that town. That could actually be like yeah. a, that's not just a. This is a relationship that will that will fade away once the the conference is over. It's like no no no. You might even be on the plane back with me. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good point. Right. And we we might be showing up back at the same meetup afterwards and and recounting our our yeah. stories. This might be the start of your new study group. You didn't know there were people around to form. Right. Yeah, that's that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, try, try a little bit of tribalism. That's a that's a good point. So conferences, Kat, you're saying it feels like a big meetup. Um, it's a lot of the same issues. Uh, there's, you know, a huge range of people. You're not going to know everyone. Uh, some of the talks are going to be at your level. Some of the talks are going to be totally not at your level. <laughs> uh, and I know, Logan, you had something to say about that. Yes. So I've I've struggled for a while with trying to pick up uh, the category theory stuff, the lambda calculus stuff. I often feel intimidated because I don't feel like I have the math background or the or the or just the general computer science background. Uh, so I, I went to, there was like a, a Lambda Calculus, this t- or not Lambda Calculus, Lambda Conf this this year did a format that was much more like class-based rather than here's an hour talk of something I'm playing with or something I want to show you or, or whatever. It's like, this is more like how-to and it's, it's more like we're going to do this for like four to six hours or so. Um, and so, like, the first day, there was, like, a big class on Lambda Calculus. And I went there, uh, eager to learn, and I was thinking, like, okay, this is my chance. And uh, I think in, like, the first five minutes, we got, like, a professor that came from, I, I, don't, I don't remember his name. Dave, do you remember his name? Dana Scott. Like, in, like, the first five minutes, he's like, well, who already knows Lambda Calculus? And I think me and three other people did not raise their hands in this, like, 30-person, 40-person room. And so it, uh, he, he's like, okay, well, well, we'll just glaze over the beginning stuff then. And, you know, of course, like me being one of these three people who don't know it, I don't want to drag it down and like ruin it for everybody else. So I'm not trying to pause it every moment and be like, wait, what do you mean by this? And so I'm just furiously taking notes as fast as I can. And I didn't really get as much out of it as I could have. Um, 
And then uh, it, we were just talking about it. I went the next day. I went to Stephen Syrek's class on Lambda Calculus. I was like, okay, let's try this again. Uh, he's a listener to the podcast. It's great. Um, so it was really great to like see the boomerang there, I guess. Uh, and uh, he showed it in JavaScript, which is like my native tongue lately, and it really clicked. And I ran away with a bunch of like notes, and they all run and compile, and not compile. They all run and produce very functional output and everything. It's really great. Yeah. So uh, thanks, Stephen, for for doing that. So so there was two sessions that ostensibly are the same topic. One was thoroughly not informative, and one was very informative. Uh, for you specifically, because for me specifically, right, because of where you're yes. at and what you're looking for, I, I I could tell that other people were getting stuff out of Dana Scott's uh, uh, Professor Scott's talk, for sure. Um, the, you know, nodding heads everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, I was just like, I, I I'm trying. Maybe maybe when I come back to this later, this will make sense. Mm-hmm. But um, so there's something you said for um, kind of knowing yourself and being okay with that, and knowing what sessions are going to be. Uh, valuable to you and which ones aren't at a conference and not trying to like yeah. punch above your weight class as it were in terms right. of like and, being too aggressive with what you're trying to take on i think it, it's it's very easy to look at the at the at the track list for lambda conf and say there's a lot of haskell going on here mm-hmm. um would you agree with that dave uh yeah and last year you you could say there's a lot of scala going on that was very prominent last yeah, year. yeah yeah and uh I, I think there's still classes you can go to that are very good. Uh, going to lightning talks is always great just because like, you know, some of them are just like five minutes, 10 minutes long. If it's a talk you don't understand, you're out five or 10 minutes mm-hmm. as opposed to, I went to an hour and got nothing out of it. And maybe I could have gone to something else instead. Sure. And, and you know, those are meant to kind of introduce you to a topic anyways. Like, Hey, this is out here. Here's uh, the, the person we roomed with uh, did a talk on lenses. Mm-hmm. Right, and it wasn't like here's deep, complicated stuff. It's like, hey, this is kind of like an idea of what they're for. Yeah, it was ten minutes on lenses. Maybe, yeah. maybe you should check them out. Right, exactly. Right, and that's that's the main walk away from that, and that's that's perfect, I think. Okay, so with with regards to conferences, it's probably true that in the functional world, you're more likely to run into talks that are advanced in a way that requires sort of a lot of formal understanding and knowledge, like a basis in category theory or advanced like type system machinery. In a way that if you're going to like, uh, I don't know, Python or Ruby talk, probably it's about a framework or library, and it's not about some type system concept you've never even seen, or like, or some right. uh, GHC right. extension or something that you're like, right. I don't even know how this works at all. I mean, I, I don't want to spread like the monad fud, but there definitely is like a degree of like, okay, I'm looking through the talk list and like, here's fancy things we can do with monads, and I'm like, okay, I don't want to do fancy things with monads until I can do simple things with monads. Right. So I'm not going to go to that one. There's also, I don't think we touched on this, um, hallway track, which is pretty interesting. Sometimes I feel like at, at conferences, because there's such a large group, um, people from different cities, I might meet somebody who actually has a similar interest of like two separate things, like maybe music and programming or, you know, like some sort of combination where it's just, um, you know, I, I meet somebody that I didn't expect to meet. Um mm-hmm. And then the hallway track is really just very open-ended. Um, there's no structure. So 
And that's a huge benefit of a conference over like a meetup is that you kind of meetups, you can have the serendipitous before and after thing a little bit, but with a conference, it's kind of just ongoing. So you have so many more opportunities to run into people. People skip out on a session and they're just kind of hanging out and you have a lot of chances to run to people. Going out and eating afterwards is always a great opportunity. Tag along with some group. Just find a group. I I would suggest anytime you're at a conference, never – well – there's some people who would suggest you never eat alone anyways for networking reasons, but certainly at a conference, don't eat alone. Go find some group and just f- go with them. And if you just listen the whole time, you will probably run into cool people that yeah. you can learn from. So I would um, also point out if you are meeting a lot of people at a conference and you're starting to forget names, what I like to do is like try to find maybe like their GitHub handle, follow them, just if they're on Twitter, follow them. Just, you know, I, at least I have it tracked somewhere. Right. Yeah, you've got it, and then you don't have to remember it anymore. It's just, it's done. Right. Cool. Okay, so let's move on to online. Uh, kind of the last, uh, and and in some ways, the biggest uh, opportunity spot for interacting with uh, the FP community. Certainly, there is a very large presence of all programming disciplines online. So functional programmers are no different there. And in many ways, I think... Um, the online communities have been the most important when there weren't large in, in-person communities to support, uh, you know, like meetups and stuff like that. So I think every major FP community has things like IRC channels. They tend to all have Slack channels or Discord channels these days, or I guess they're Discord communities, uh, and mailing lists. Is there anything else that... There's... So I think GitHub has Gitter now, and there might be some communities there, although I haven't really participated in any... Yep. No, you're totally right. There's Gitter as well. So any of those sort of Slack, Discord, Gitter type messaging uh, systems, it's sort of, you know, they're all IRC-like in that there's a, a persistent sort of online group that can, uh, great for asking questions. So this is, um, what's unique about online is that it's, there's, because it's worldwide, there tends to be people online all the time. So it's a great for like, I'm having this problem right now. You don't maybe want to wait to your meetup to show someone your error message about your type error trying to, you know, puzzle it out, but asking online is a pretty good way to have that answered. Uh, And with that said, asking online is also a great way for someone to misunderstand you or to demonstrate their extreme lack of social skills and and emotional intelligence and be a big poo-poo head to you. Much as lost over text. Yes. For sure. Definitely. And I think also, um, you know, as we continue on like the negative points of online communication, Maybe they can't see body language or like nonverbal cues. So maybe if you ask a question, it didn't get phrased right. And they'll just, you know, think very dismissively, oh, you should do X, Y, and Z. So one personal experience I had was, I forget what question I was asking on the Haskell IRC channel, but the answer I still remember was, go read these three textbooks and you'll have your answer. And I was thinking, no, I want a quick answer that is a little more direct. And reading three textbooks will not help me because I don't think I can read that in one was, afternoon. Was that meant facetiously? Yeah, I can't tell because it was all in text. <laughs> okay, sorry. But those, the, I, I would say there's a fairly famous or infamous uh, reputation that especially the Haskell community has for answers like that, right? That, that it feels like you come in the door and you're like, hey, could you explain a monad? And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. Just, uh, you know, here's a book on Lambda Calculus, and here's a book on this, and here's a book on this. What's your deal with yeah. that? Then we can talk about monads. And it's like, uh, we could do better than that. We can actually explain them with you having no prior understanding of what this thing is. Right. 
that's supposed to be the sign of true mastery, right? Is that you can explain it to others simply. Yeah, and I I would hold that against a lot of online communities that if you aren't able to communicate your things to a complete beginner, you don't understand it well enough. Right. And if anyone out there would love to explain Komonads to me uh, further, uh, I, w- <laughs> I would love to hear that. Um, and Kofri as well, because they're used together. Kofri, Komonads. I, d- I did find out forgetful functors are real things. I don't. I, I heard them as part of a joke. That's some of the things like you don't know when somebody's joking about some made-up <laughs> concept or function. Right. Like, what, what, what's my favorite one? Zygohistomorphic prepromorphism. Uh, like, that's a real thing. That's and, totally a real thing. Yeah. And it, but it sounds like a joke. It sounds like I just completely supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It's like it's pretty yeah. much one of those words, right? So it it can feel like um, some. I think some people legitimately in the community say, well. The thing you're asking about is legit, is fairly complex, and to get the nuance of it, you would need to read these books. So there, there may even be a, That's fair. a an error of like, I want you to understand this because it's so cool and it will change the way you think about programming. I want for you to to have that because that's awesome. Uh, and and to do it, I don't know any other way than to hand you this book and then since you have to go read about it. But I think as a community, we have to get better at saying, like, you don't go to the JavaScript community and you're like, what's a promise? And they're like, well, you need to go read all this theory, and then we can explain what a promise is. It's like, no, they just explain it to you, right? And you also have to be careful about, you don't know about promises? Like, it's like this big thing we got to shout out in the room now. <laughs> um, I, I know that's like, really what you're trying to say is like, you don't know about this cool concept. I'm excited. Let me explain it to you. It might help to say that sentence instead of the prior one. I was going to make an analogy of like going into a restaurant, a sit-down restaurant, and they're like, well, why don't you just go in the kitchen and cook it yourself? Right. <laughs> That's definitely <laughs> what I did not expect. And you're like, I would like to eat it first, probably. And then if I say I like <laughs> right. it, then I'll go figure out how to make it. That right. seems like a reasonable way. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to go with, you go to a restaurant and you sit down. Because I think this is something that happens to people. You go to a, a Japanese restaurant and you're like, I'll have the... And they're like, oh, okay. And then the, the waiter just nods and they're like, I know which one you're talking about and you can't pronounce it. And you have no idea what it is. But like, you don't want to ask, like, what's the blah, blah, blah. And they don't go, you don't know what the blah, blah, blah is? Like, get out of here. They're like, oh, that's, you know, it's got this and this and this in it. It's really good. Do you, you know, do you like uh, saltier? Oh, do you like sweeter? Treat? Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're excited to share with you. So we can <laughs> we can learn as as members of the community when people ask us questions. I think your point, Logan, is is excellent, and we'll we'll get to that. Um, it's really important how we share enthusiasm because this again ha- there's the era of sort of elitism and sort of impenetrability of FP, and then uh, there is a lot in functional programming to be very excited about to a degree that we are not often excited about uh, in OO. Right, uh, and and it feels like there's all, you're always learning another cool, interesting, exciting thing. You mentioned forgetful functors. I'm trying to learn about adjunctions right now, and I like barely kind of understand adjunctions. And I'm sure if someone came to me and you know, once I I own that, I would want to explain that to them the same way that today I'm very comfortable this explaining. Transform you, yeah, because because yeah. today I, I I explain people you know monoids and functors and applicative functors and and monads. I can explain those very clearly now because I've had some practice at it and I feel like those are useful things to understand even if you aren't programming in Haskell and I want to share it with them but you do have to be real careful about how you deliver it and I'm sure that as I learn more and more and someday I'll understand co-free co-monads and adjunctions and, and all these fun things and I'll want to share those as well but I have to really watch how <laughs> enthusiastic and then I don't come across as pushing it on someone or telling them that they're wrong for not understanding these things yeah mm-hmm. um Right. So that goes, that goes back to what you were saying earlier, Kat, about like 
people may not be the best at, at explaining things, but we kind of have to uh, give them a little bit of benefit of the doubt that they are doing it because they're excited, not because they're mean right. <laughs> or, you know, hopefully view it in a, in a positive light. And online, it's super hard because, um, like you were saying, Logan, no social uh, cues. It's a lot harder to, to understand the nuances of what they're it, saying. It always helps, like, talk more, use more emoticons. Because there's a lot that your initial sentence probably has laced into its words that didn't get transmitted. Also, though, I feel like when you're a beginner, and when I was just starting out in high school, it was really hard to phrase questions. I didn't know what's the proper way to ask certain things. And that was a barrier. And I know that um, at least in the Slack and the IRC communities, the uh, FP Chat Slack community and the Haskell IRC community, there's a Haskell and there's also a Haskell Beginners Right. So some communities have recognized mm. this and created dedicated beginner channels. On the Elm Slack, there's the general, there's the beginners, there's a couple different you know special areas. But a lot of communities have started to create explicit beginner channels. I think that's a very positive uh, direction to go in. Definitely. So if you're in the beginner channel, you're a beginner. Ask your beginner questions. That's the point. That's the re- people are only here to either ask or answer or hear and you know overhear and and buy and learn via these beginner questions. I do like that online is easier to get to. Like, for instance, right now we are all online chatting here. Um, But also just like sometimes, um, you know, I just can't physically be at a meetup or conference. So having the access is still wonderful. And then, um, you know, if I'm up late in the middle of the night, somebody is awake in a different time zone. So I could still get access to ask somebody questions or just chat about some cool library. Definitely. I owe much of my understanding of like the static functional, like Haskell and PureScript, to the PureScript uh, Slack community, the PureScript channel on the FP Chat Slack community. Like they got me over tons of humps in terms of my understanding. So online is king and or queen, not non-gendered royalty of uh, communication, both asynchronous and synchronous, kind of serves all needs, but has the lowest like information density, right? At the highest chance of being mm. misunderstood, uh, things like that, right? Because uh, you lose yeah. all your body language, you lose all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's, are we ready to transition into the flip side about running and or starting a group? Sure, let's talk about it. Yes. All right, so Do it. what are our thoughts on running some sort of functional programming related community? Be the change you want to see. Yes. Okay, do it. Yes, I like yeah. it. Yes, take initiative. But also, I think having been somebody who has organized meetups, I, there's always this like pause that I have of like, oh, you know, like all the bad memories or bad experiences that just like, how do I prevent them from happening? So that's like, there's always a moment of silence to like think over that, um, take a deep breath, and then um, start planning. So you're talking about the, the idea of like, um, if I do this, I want to do it right. I want to do it better than the ones that I've experienced. Right. Or just to avoid um, certain characters who just, you know, are, are pretty vivid in my memory. Okay. Um, so <laughs> um, just, you know, like maybe they have quirks um, that are maybe not quite as uh, digestible um, in, in most social settings. So okay. what I'm trying to refer to is... Um, you know, like a code of conduct for these events, some sort of guideline to help 
um, set the tone of the event to help produce the most pleasant outcome, um, try to prevent unexpected things from happening. Okay. So um, did, did your uh, New York uh, meetup or study group have something like that going on? Um, as a group, we don't have an official one, but sometimes when we have um, like workshops or office hours, um, hangout events, we will have one. And then um, depending on where we host it, sometimes that location will have their own set of conduct rules and mm-hmm. we'll have them posted linked to the meetup page. Gotcha. Like a makerspace or something. Right. I think it's important to point out for code of conduct is like some of us are in positions where we feel comfortable pretty much anywhere we go and not everybody quite has that and to kind of welcome them it's nice to have some ground rules that say look these kinds of behaviors just up front are not tolerated and there's no you know this doesn't have to pass through a panel of judges or we have to make a call it's like no this this kind of behavior right here, clearly uncalled for and not something that we want in this community, right? If you report it, you will be supported in this. Mm-hmm. So in a way, and there's, and there's, of course, many codes of conduct. That's a very, it's a spectrum. And, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But code of conduct yeah. say what you're for as much as they say what you're against. It's almost like writing a type signature, like having that outlined prior to, you know, filling in the gaps. That's awesome to think of it as a social type signature. It's a social type signature. I like that. Yes. That's pretty cool. Um, So I know there's a lot of opinions on codes of conduct, and there's even been controversies over codes of conduct. Uh, Really broadly speaking, we're just talking about as a community, you've decided what you're for and what you're against, and you've put that out there so that when people arrive, they are not surprised because no one's interested in tricking someone into attending an event just so that they can violate your code of conduct so you can have to kick them out. Like as an organizer... I never want to have to deal with that. That's like the very low end of anything I ever want to do with any night. Um, and I yeah. think that's generally true that no one's looking to kick someone else out. We just want to, um, well, we, we have things we're for and that's really what we're defending by kind of, it's easier to say what we're against because we're generally for more things that we're against. So we'll just enumerate the against. Um, but really we're trying to emphasize the opposite and everything else we're, we're kind of for. <laughs> and, and there's very small codes of conduct um, I think the Recurse Center Social Rules is a good example of a very minimal uh, kind of, they don't call it a code of conduct, but it's kind of like it. And it, they have three rules, I think, altogether. It's uh, you don't well actually people. So if someone's talking and they make a very small, trivial mistake and you jump in and well actually blah, 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 blah. And you're you're basically, you're generally doing it to grandstand and to, to put the attention on you. And it doesn't really contribute and it often derails the conversation. So you don't do that. Um, you don't, uh, sorry, I'm blanking on the rules now. No will actuallys, no uh, backseat driving. So if someone's working on something and you kind of overhear the conversation, you don't just yell things at them. You don't just tell them what they should do or drive by with, with advice. They ask you, of course, that's great. Or if you sit down with them, like, hey, could I join you? I'm really interested in what you're talking about. Great, let's do that. Um, and, and of course, they invite you in. But you don't just kind of lob things at people. That, that's a big one at, when you have people who kind of feel the need to participate in everyone's projects, whether they're invited to or not. Um, that can be a problem. Uh, they have no subtle isms. So, you know, if you think someone might be offended, probably should hold off on that kind of thing. Um, they are on the side of, of inclusiveness kind of a thing. Yeah, you know? and it's like it probably isn't technical if it's an ism. 
you know, probably doesn't have anything to do with tech and, and the reason yeah, that yeah. you're there, right? Um, try, try and just keep it to the tech if you can. Yeah. So, you know, really simple, really lightweight kind of things. Um, and, you know, that that's a nice, very light, I mean, if it's tiny, uh, you know, it could be on a little tiny plaque kind of thing. And then we have like much more heavyweight codes of conduct um, that you might have seen. Um, two examples I might give of that are the LambdaConf code of conduct, which is uh, pretty far on the extreme of everyone is welcome to attend. This is what we expect of you, but we will not tell anyone they can't come. Like that's that's important to the LambdaConf group. Interesting. And then you have um, sort of in opposition that like the MoonConf or the uh, my, Maitreya, I think is how you pronounce it, uh, code of conduct. And that's very much about saying... Uh, everyone, uh, every, I don't want to miss like characterize this. So it, it's very in, interested. It's very concerned with saying everyone feels safe here, and even if you didn't mean to, you could say things that make other people feel unsafe, and that's against our code of conduct. So you have to be much more careful, perhaps in that situation, than you would be in like a lambdaconf situation. Not the lambdaconf is in any way encouraging people to say things that make other people uncomfortable. Uh, but they're sort of not, they're, they're sort of saying, hey, people are going to have other opinions. It's going to happen. We expect it. We're actually yeah, inviting them. We're going to be a perfect answer to a code of conduct, I don't think. Absolutely. So they're, they're going to be all over the right. place. Um, all of them are seeking to make it in some way a safe place for people to come. And they're targeting different groups of people and they're targeting different uh, definitions of safety, right? Some, some are more maybe an intellectual safety and some are more an emotional safety or social safety. Right. And then also, um, in addition to just human to human sort of, I guess, how to be a nice, pleasant person to be around, maybe there's like actual advice that someone who's running an event can give, um, maybe like housekeeping rules. Do you, do you have examples of those? Um, so not specific to the New York Haskell group, but there are some New York events where uh, attendees at uh, will show up at the event because there's pizza and beverages and when they leave they'll pocket some of the extras so over time some some of the oh. hosting venues will just avoid um, providing refreshments because they're not trying to feed people for several days they're just feeding for the event so the, sort of a we know people have done this don't do this Right. Um, so then I think there was one venue that just decided they would lock their refrigerators whenever there's a meetup event hosted, like no matter which group. Um, so there's different ways that venues handle it. But um, I guess just housekeeping rules in in the terms of like how to be a good guest um, somewhere. Yeah, like don't use the work computers that are there unless somebody who you know <laughs> works there has invited you into it. It should be. <laughs> we we would say think that. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I agree. Um, the place I uh, hosted for a long time, my functional, the Phoenix functional group, uh, they they locked and they had us. They locked the fridge. They had a sign: "Food is for employees only." And I put that on my slides. The the slide I have when people walk in: "Hey, the Wi-Fi password is this. This is where to find the bathrooms." And don't eat food out of the kitchen. It's not ours. Thank you to this company for hosting us. Don't screw it up and get me kicked out and, and us by extension, you know. Right. So you're right. You, you, we might, things we might take for granted, uh, granted, not granted, right. uh, may, may need explicit explanation. Right. Because we are trying to build a relationship with whichever um, venue can host us. And that, that can be a fragile relationship as well. Right. <laughs> Definitely. 
Okay, so there can be uh, definitely as an organizer, you can give some gui- some guidelines to your attendees through a code of conduct, whether that's very light or, or heavier weight. You can have sort of these, you know, not tips, but like, hey, things to keep in mind. Don't eat their food. You know, don't wander around in their office unattended unless you're invited or something like that. Um, we can also give advice to the people who come to present there. Yes. The New York House School has... A document that we have developed over the years that we would show to speakers to give them some advice. So some things that they can think about while they develop their talk. Um, And then also specific guidelines on like when they arrive that day, certain things to keep in mind. Um, And then also just um, as they deliver their talk, several things they can keep in mind. So some more specific examples. So... um, Developing the talk, try to use gender-neutral pronouns, um, avoid using words like obviously and clearly, you know, to avoid sounding like everybody should know the material that you're talking about. Um, And then maybe rehearse beforehand so you can get the timing and, and just the content, you know, just so you don't seem too raw and green at speaking, but that you, you can feel a little bit more uh, confident while you're speaking and, and therefore come across a little bit more polished. Um, also, maybe think about ways you can pro- provide slides to the audience members afterward or the code. Um, so then as far as arrival day uh, or arriving for the event and preparing, maybe arrive early, make sure you have the dongles that are correct for your laptop or communicate with the organizer of what you need. And then also test audio if that's something you need and just you know, test the AV connection, make sure that's all good. Um, and then maybe just Try have to rely on an internet connection. Oh maybe. yes. Don't rely on the internet connection. Um, and then have like a backup USB or something, you know, just, just in case. Um, arrive a little early so they can get all that set up. Um, and then the last part, delivering your talk. Uh, try to avoid the word monad because not everybody's going to know it. <laughs> if you're going to show code on a slide, maybe explain the code. Maybe um, don't just stare at it, but like explain it. I mean, it doesn't say explicitly don't stare at it, but the, the advice is to explain it and translate it so that even people who have not coded Haskell know what you're uh, trying to show. And then um, make sure the font's big enough and face mm-hmm. the audience when you're talking so that the sound is projected and then also like the microphone can pick it up a little better. And then um, if there's any audience member who has very long-winded uh, questions, try to answer with something like, let's discuss this afterwards just to keep things moving. Yeah. It's also good to repeat the questions too. Oh, that's uh, a especially good idea. like if you have to come back to like a recorded talk or something, then you know they may not be on the mic or the mic might not be very great. So just really quick, just re- re- reproduce the question. Maybe it'd be nice to also just some people may not understand the question that's even being asked in the first place. Mm-hmm. So maybe a simple maybe there's a simplification that will help uh, other people with the topic. Yep. I remembered, uh, it was nagging at me, there was a fourth recurse center rule, and it's like the most important one. It's a no feigned ignorance. So th- when they say, 
Uh, like don't bait for something. Uh, okay. It's not so much baiting. It's just the way you're trying to, uh, you know, it's what you said earlier. Someone's like, oh yeah, well, well, I don't know what a monad is. You don't go, oh, you don't know what a monad is? Like, you know, <laughs> oh. feigning, like it's feigned ignorance that you're not making a big deal that they don't understand what something is. Um, and, and that goes back to probably when people do that, they, well, some people are doing it, of course, to feel superior and in, in th- that they do understand this thing. But I think other people are genuinely interested in telling you about it. They're just communicating it incredibly poorly. Yeah. So that, it's just a social world right. to be like, you need to be very careful the, in your their delivery. Their excitement's overpowering their consideration for the other person. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, um, okay, so yeah, um, providing a speaker uh, a, a nice checklist rundown of things to consider can certainly help make your event go much smoother, especially because very few people who are proficient in technology are very experienced uh, public speakers. Correct. Right, yeah. There's just not a huge overlap there. So, of course, everyone, most everyone is new to public speaking, just like any new member to anything. Let's help them out and give them lots of advice and lots of support. If you do want practice with public speaking, Toastmasters can be a really great way to go for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very difficult, though. Um, if you can survive a Toastmasters section, you can do a technical talk on virtually anything. <laughs> yeah. If you have the, the, the material for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, they and just to, just to warn, like they'll do things like honk horns when you say words that mean nothing they just fill the air like all right the um, the filler words yeah and that, that's all in good uh in good faith they're doing it intentionally to point out to you in the moment that you're doing this thing so you can yes it, it, you, um, it is kind of like the boot like camp of public speaking and everybody there is there to do that and knows that mm-hmm. and you'll get a chance to like you know blow the whistle at them too mm-hmm. i think literally it is a whistle sometimes uh, and there's like a bell that gets dinged for us because those are in like their own special camp and and more generally, just if you want to get good at public speaking, go to your local whatever meetup. doesn't have to be an FP meetup. Whatever meetup. They probably need speakers. Sign up to give a talk. And you may feel like you've got nothing to give a talk for. As someone who runs two different meetups, one FP, one not, uh, I encourage people to just sign up and give a talk. You don't even have to tell me what it's going to be for. You will then a week out go, oh, crap, what am I give a talk on? You become highly motivated and you'll go, you'll work really hard on it and you'll, and you'll produce something great and you'll learn a lot in the process. So putting yourself on, on blast sort of like by signing up for it is a really good way to get over that hump. And, and I, I try to advise people this just generally is the things that are easy to you are probably the things that you are good at. Okay. Right? And, and, so, and they so may be hard to someone else. And if, they would you're, if you're pretty good about doing like these kinds of transformations, they all just come naturally to you. It may seem very obvious, very self-evident to you, not to everybody else, and somebody could gain something from that. Mm-hmm. And there's no harm in like submitting a proposal for a talk. You don't have to put the talk together. Just put the proposal out there, and if somebody bites, then great. Go do your talk on it. That means they're interested. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's going to be some people who already know it, and they can either skip out or look at their email or something while you're talking or whatever. I mean, it's it's you can't appease everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe it would be good to start with like a lightning talk. Um, and then also, I just remembered as a organizer who sometimes um, you're looking for more people to talk, maybe you're trying to fill up time. Sometimes in the past, we've had time blocked out for lightning talks so that people can sign up that day to talk about whatever they're working on. So, so maybe some some of your evenings you have a uh, a lightning talk format instead of a traditional talk format, and that gives people opportunities to kind of jump in there uh, with these much smaller chunks of presenting on a regular Correct. basis. Maybe every yes. three months, four months, you have a lightning talk night. 
Right. Because if you give like an hour long talk, you, you want to feel like, yes, I have the code working, a working library or something to show. Um, and, and that's a higher level to reach than just here's a five minute talk, work in progress. I just started and here's a stumbling block. Um, I just want to share with the group kind of thing to get some feedback. Um, yeah. So as somebody who is get new to speaking, definitely try giving lightning talks. And then also for organizers or people who want to organize events, but can't find speakers, maybe consider lightning talks. Yeah, I found that um, fairly successful in terms of getting people to come out who wouldn't normally, I can kind of cajole people into giving a little lightning talk where they would never have uh, signed up for a, a full like hour, 45 minute kind of talk. Right. Yeah. So it can help. And then those people hopefully come back and uh, later they become the people who do give the full talks because now they're kind of over that hump. It's like you're helping them progress as speakers. Right. As parts, of, as members of your community. I have one last thing to talk about in terms of running meetups. It's the uh, the focus problem in terms of who do you serve? Like as you're selecting, if you're blessed enough to, if you're fortunate enough to have multiple competing people who want to speak on a given month and you have to actually schedule them and, and tell some people, you know, it's going to be three months before you can get in. That's great. Uh, if you aren't, of course, you take what you can get. Um, but if you do have any sort of decision that you can do, you then are faced with this issue of, how do I keep the advanced people in my group happy by giving them content that they're interested in while not completely alienating the beginner people? And some user groups that are very large have this problem of on any given night, they may have twice or three times as many people show up as on another night because the, the topic is relevant to that larger group and then uh, not relevant the next week when you have a very small group. So you kind of have to decide, like, how are you going to balance that? And I know some groups, uh, when they're fairly successful, will break up into two separate groups, a beginner group and advanced group, or they'll alternate nights and say, these months are our sort of beginner focus groups and these months are advanced focus groups. And that's just kind of known so that you at least, uh, maybe you're an advanced user and you still come out to the beginner group for the social aspect to talk to people, maybe go out and dinner, eat afterwards, uh, something like that. Uh, there's that community building, you know, hey, what's going on with you? What's going on with you? Uh, and then you know that you, you'll have your night coming <laughs> the next month and the beginner people can come out and maybe pick up a, a little thing or two and kind of marvel at how much there is still to learn. Uh, and then again, they're there for the social night. So there, there's blended kind of groups that you could do, or you could do completely se separate groups if you have a large enough group. I've been to a lot of meetups too, where there's a lot of after hours things that go mm -hmm. on, um, which can be difficult for some people to attend because they've got family to go back to, or they have a sleep schedule to keep or something. Um, if you can make it great, if not, you know, that's all right too. But that's definitely a place that people like go and share war stories with each other and, you know, they can be a lot more freeform. I've definitely found the after event uh, sometimes is the best part of the whole evening. Like just those yeah. conversations that happened and the, and the relationships you build. Now, with that said, there is a very high tendency to do a uh, food and alcohol based after event. That's a very common thing. Let's go out to eat at this local pub brewery type place. I would encourage um, event organizers to think of ways to not necessarily have that be the sort of de facto base for your social component of your group, because you will necessarily be excluding people and you may not be recognizing even that you're excluding them. Uh, Stephanie Hurlbert, uh, 
you can follow her on Twitter. She's, she speaks to this fairly often. She's not um, really in the FP community, but she talks a lot about um, sort of tech and culture and stuff like that. And she, she advocated kind of half jokingly that, that we meet up for our, our group user group at the spa. And, uh, you know, who'd, who'd be down for that? And uh, plenty of guys, including me, were like, that sounds great. Let's do that. Uh, so it doesn't, you know, when you're thinking about this, you don't just have to follow this model of we, we can only meet at some business and then go out for beer or whatever, alcoholic beverage and food afterwards. You can do, you know, you, you can, there's probably a little more latitude there than we, than we generally um, think of. And I don't think a huge amount of people in the tech world are going to think that going to a spa is like this horrible faux pas that can't possibly be forgiven. I would check first. Uh, most of the stuff in Portland are all nude spas. Hmm. Okay. So probably not Probably okay. not where you want to go in Portland. but Fair to you check know, on those things, yes. Check on that first before you roll in. Um, that could be very awkward if that's something your, your group is not okay with. Um, and maybe that's an opportunity to survey the group to get to know them better uh, and know their preferences. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You mean like maybe throw out suggestions for places you could go? One of which is the traditional like food and food and beer. But then there's, hey, there's these other things we could do also. These different right. menus we could be at. Yeah. I, I do know that some people feel, feel very excluded by the alcohol culture that seems to follow around conferences a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I take a uh, psychiatric medicine that interacts with alcohol now, and it has effects that are very negative for me, so I have to stay away from it now. Right. Um, and I don't feel necessarily pressured when I go out uh, that I have to also imbibe with other people. I can go get a soda or just a water or appetizers or whatever. Not everybody feels that way, though. Uh, yeah. Some people feel very intimidated by it. They may have even had other people pressure them at some point to have alcohol when they really shouldn't be having any alcohol. Yep. Um, yeah, I often order iced tea instead of alcohol. Um, there you go. I will say that um, if you are the organizer, uh, you should make an effort to attend those after events. If or, or you know, if you're organizing them, of course, you'll go. Or if people are choosing to go out, maybe participate in that. And um, you know, communicate that your code of contact code of conduct does extend out to these even though there's a more social thing it's still part of your group it's still part of the interactions you're doing especially if it's like the official after thing that you're doing you, you i mean you're not gonna tell people what they can do on their own but if you're going as the official where we go afterwards um you know keep your eyes open that that even in a place that feels more relaxed that maybe where more of these issues come up where people step across a, a boundary clearly you know, pressuring someone into drinking when they uh, don't want to is should be a violation of anyone's code of conduct. Not that it has no to be means, spelled out. No means no, right? Absolutely, yeah. All right. Do we have anything else we want to say about the FP community? I, it's a great community. I, yeah, I want to say they're great. Um, actually, just, I guess, maybe like a comment just based on observation, and, and I don't have a very big sample. Um, but it just seems like those who have arrived at Haskell seem to be somehow either musically inclined or, um, you know, just like in some way th- they've been exposed to the idea of composing. Um, so like in music, composing chords. So I just thought that was interesting. You've noticed like a higher, like a disproportionately high correlation there. Like yes. it was, it was weird. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. 
It was not a scientific study at all. Sure. <laughs> I think I've noticed that amongst programmers, generally speaking. Oh, okay. Uh, but but I bet certain aspects, um, certain languages probably have higher tendencies towards things like that. And maybe Haskell is one of them. That'd be really interesting to see uh, percentage of people who are part-time musicians or, or, or you know, professional came from a professional background or something by language breakdown to just to oh, see if there's any yeah, like correlation there. I definitely have a mentee that's like used to teach music, and and she uh, she often builds connections from music to software, mm. and I don't necessarily see them, but I try very hard not to, you know, discourage that necessarily. If it helps her understand it, then all the better. Right, absolutely. It's like a Julie Mordoki, one of the authors of Haskell book, had the psychology background, and she used like a language kind of. Uh, I think it was a psychology background, uh, but she used like a linguistic base for her connection into Haskell and she would, was able to relate things. So yeah, it's a lot of times we think like, if you don't have a computer science background, what are you doing? And I hear more and more stories of people who had non-traditional backgrounds. Uh, Steven Syrick, who we've mentioned a couple times this, this episode so far. Uh, he's teaching English, right? Uh, well, he has an English, uh, his, his degree is in English. Yeah. And so he, he came to programming through a non-traditional background and is maybe even better for it. Right. As a result of, you know, he was able to learn these things uh, without like a CS background, but was also sort of rounded out in many ways by this liberal arts background that he had. Having uh, skills in communication, in psychology, even this is very much a discipline of the mind. Yep. Right. And Uh, people interacting with people and teams. Yes. I have one last thing I want to say, and I know this isn't quite community in, in the sense of like the social aspect, but community in the sense of like, documentation for Haskell's fairly sparse and uh, I, I wish there were more of that okay so outside of Haskell though uh, in the FP community we could say that maybe you know closure or something might have better documentation so that varies uh, between communities although I would say that the static FP communities do a poor job of documentation generally speaking I think that the types are relied on in place of and I would put like OCaml and, and a lot of the ML kind of family languages okay. in here in this boat of having poor documentation. Um, well, I, I would like to characterize it as um, there are such bleeding edge um, languages that the priorities on developing the language um, more than documentation. Documentation isn't as sexy. It's kind of brittle in a sense because it's easy to become outdated yes. and you got to remember to go back to it. And your type system doesn't tell you that your documentation's wrong. Right. Right. If you can read it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So that's sort of a community aspect that we could probably talk about um, that may even deserve its own episode, kind of a, a learning FP thing. We've kind of touched on it, that. but If you're looking to break into the industry, even just software in general, though, sometimes jumping into documentation can be a great place to start. Like to I contribute or like, to contribute yeah, okay. to like, to like, here's some pull requests with docs and you know, people will correct you and be like, eh, no, change that over there. But the thing is, it's like, because you're spearheading it, it happens. Mm-hmm. Right. And because you have very little knowledge of what it is that you're talking about going into it, you're the perfect person to do it. Yes. Yep. You come in with that, that correct mindset of these things don't make sense to me. So they won't make sense to a lot of other people, broadly yeah. speaking. So I mean, if you can get important, that, that's one thing that we pride ourselves on the on the podcast, right? Is we have a spectrum of people's knowledge and, and expertise inside of functional programming, from people we consider to be very skilled to 
just barely being introduced to the topic. Mm-hmm. And we value that. And uh, we got feedback at Lambda Conf that it was indeed something they really enjoyed. That, that was the most consistent bit of feedback we had. Was yeah, that yeah, yeah. People enjoyed that. So yeah, uh, not saying learn from our example, but uh, that is something we've tried to take into account. And I think it has paid off fairly well that we've had a good reception mm-hmm. to it. Cool. Well, with that, I think we'll wrap up this episode. Thank you all for joining us again. Send us your feedback. Contact at lambdacast.com. I have something. I, I, I've been uh, reading some blog posts about making your arch- architecture docs as bland and as boring as possible. Uh, it's a new method I've heard about called fervorless architecture. Fervorless architecture. <laughs> I think that's a, is that an Amazon service now. Yeah, yeah. It's on EC2. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us. See you next time, everyone. See ya. Bye.